You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey folks, how's it going? Welcome to a fresh episode for your ears. Just a quick reminder before we get into today's episode that today, as of when this episode drops, is February the 17th, and it is the last day to enter the contest to win the Fender The Trapper Fuzz, and you do that by trying to help Tepe Taranishi from Thrice try to find his stolen Les Paul. So if you go to Instagram and you type in hashtag find Tepe's Les Paul, you'll see most people have shared the same picture, and that's the picture you should share, is of him playing it with the serial number, which is 8248530. And so I will be this week, once this day is over with, I will be randomly selecting somebody who shared that post to win the Fender the Trapper. So, anyways, this episode is for the nerds, and it's very, very educational. I know you're not used to that on this podcast, you're used to mindless blabbering. But today I have Jason Rogers from JMR Guitars, and my good friend Justin Porter. We recorded it here in the Shred Shed, and we are learning all about multi-scale guitars, something that I didn't really know that much about, but I got to hang out with one of Jason's guitars for a few months. We recorded this back in December, and I just had other things come up to where I needed to drop it now. So it doesn't matter. It's timeless. It's not like it the content has expired or anything, but Jason is an amazing luthier uh, local to me here in the Portland metro area. He makes really, really cool guitars. We talk all about it, so I won't go into too much more detail, but he also used to be a co-host on the Luthierist. Luthierist? I, Luthierist. Yeah, there, I got it. With Paul Roney, and we talk about that a little bit, and we get into some more, yeah, in-depth discussion about multiscale and why it exists and what it does and blah, 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 blah. So, without further ado... Let's get into today's episode with Jason Rogers and Justin Porter. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Tone Mob podcast, the show about guitar tone and the people behind it. I'm your host, Blake Weiland, and with me today, I have my good friend, Justin Porter, Yo. and my new friend, Jason Rogers. Hello. How's it going, man? It is going well. Jason is from JMR Guitars, and we're going to talk about why I've been saying it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, I, I when I think about this, when it comes to like creating a business name, I probably did it all wrong because, you know, when you see, when you see like uh, advice on like, how do you create a business name? You know, do you, do you do your name? Do you come up with something weird? You know, some kind of word that strikes people so it's it's just my initials yeah that makes sense jason michael rogers but i spelled it phonetically and this was something that i got from my from my father-in-law when he was when he was in um it was in vietnam but during the vietnam war he served in in germany and when he would write letters home to his parents he would sign them r c y but he wouldn't he wouldn't put his initials he would write the word a r e s e e W-H-Y. Okay. And it was just kind of a weird thing that he did. I kind of um, like it, though. <laughs> so, I'm into it. And so, when, you know, he, when, I, when I first met him, when I, you know, I first started going with my wife, um, you know, we'd do email and stuff, and he'd sign his emails that way. He would still sign things like that every now and again. I'm like, mm-hmm. why is he doing that? What does that mean? And I asked my wife that, and she explained it. Mm-hmm. 
And so I'm like, that's cool. I could do that too. J-M-R. But it doesn't spell any interesting words or anything. Yeah, it, just, it, just, it just makes a new word. So it's, it is J-M-R. And, the, and my, my logo is that too. It's, yeah, that, that was a big a tipping point. After Jess said that, I was like, I don't, and I even on the podcast, I was like, I don't know. I'm not really sure what it is. And I was like, hmm. Like, I'm pretty sure it's just oh, his initials. There it is. Out. There it is. It's right so, there. So when I said J-M-R on Chasing Tone, uh, that was wrong. So, all right. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, because I, I mean, I, we haven't really talked about it. This is not the only podcast I do. I also am a co-host on Chasing Tone with Brian Wampler mm-hmm. 99% of the time. Yeah. Sometimes he does other things, but it's well, usually me rambling. I appreciate you mentioning me even slightly. Uh, well, it was, like, you know, it was like in New Gear stuff, what's going on? I'm like, well, I got this crazy guitar, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. So why don't we get into your story, though? Like, where did you start? When did you first pick up the instrument and how did you go down this crazy luthier path that that is a that is a story that stretches out and it um in, in terms of like playing guitar and getting into guitar and then eventually getting into luthery um but i i started playing you know as a kid i was like i think the summer between eighth and ninth grade that would have been what summer of 1990 and i just i didn't really have anybody I wanted to play like at the time. I was just like, I wanted to play guitar. Mm-hmm. And um, my Luthery uh, career and, and interest is is spaced out quite far from where I started playing guitar. Um, I started playing, you know, I was a kid, uh, like between eighth and ninth grade. So, you know, summer of 1990 or so. And um, I didn't really have any specific guitar player that I wanted to play like. I just knew that I wanted to play guitar. Mm-hmm. And we, we had moved to a, a new town and um, the, I, like I got into the band at school and I started taking piano lessons from a local lady and um, started playing guitar and taking guitar lessons from a local lady. And it just started out with like the Mel Bay book, you know, mm-hmm. playing, you know, hanging on your head, Tom Dooley and stuff like that. And um, it was just on a nylon string guitar. And then there's a guy in my band class who had an electric guitar and you'd bring it and you know, you'd go into the band room at lunchtime and everybody hang out and, and this guy could, this guy could play, you know, like guns and roses and the slaughter covers and stuff like this. It was awesome. So, so, um, I started listening to a little bit more rock at that time. Um, you know, listening to, uh, you know, the hair bands, uh, you know, poison and, and, uh, Motley Crue and, and slaughter and and warrant and all oh, all yeah, those yeah. like oh, yeah. you know late mm-hmm. late hair bands that were you know transitioning into the grunge stuff um got into metallica into alice in chains into soundgarden um a little bit later but uh, you know it, it it just my guitar heroes were were it was pretty simple you know it was like slash kirk hammett Mm-hmm. um jerry cantrell you right know? yeah <laughs> and and it was really hard i i didn't really have much concept of like trying to get to sound like them because i was playing through like this korean strat copy is something called a tanara through a like this you know eight inch gorilla practice amp and there was there was not really much tone going on right yeah. you know i just knew that i liked to play with the humbucker um you know, tone wide open and as much crunch on the amp as I possibly could. 
Um, yeah, sounds about right. Yeah, that's, and that's, we've all been there for and, sure. You know, I it just I just try. You know, I was in a garage band with my friends. Um, actually, my my friend who makes my straps now, Lon Whittier, M7 Straps. He was bass player in my first garage band, and we that's where we learned to play all of our covers and everything. And and uh, and and it, there was never. My my interest in guitar, like I, I always like to take things apart. Mm -hmm. You know, as soon as I get something new, like I get a new Walkman, I would the first thing I would do was I'd listen to my favorite cassette tape, and mm -hmm. then I would take it apart to like look at all the guts and see what was going on inside of it, and then I put it back together to make sure that it still worked. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I always like to like see what was under the hood of things. Um, and as soon as I got that first electric guitar, I played it for a while, and then I took it apart. I like took every screw, everything. <laughs> like off of that instrument and put it back together. Um, you know, it, it, you just, that was never with any, you know, idea of modifying it in any way or anything like that. It was just like, what, how does it work? Right. Know, what's going on? Um, and I, and I was kind of kid, um, you know, I, I always like to take things apart. Like my brothers and sisters would bring me toys that broke and they would say, here, fix this. And I would try to, sometimes mm -hmm. I could, you know, sometimes I couldn't, I could make it better a little bit. Yeah. Um, put some glue on this here, but um, um, you know, I and I, I, I have to tell you, I'm not going to be able to answer one of your last questions about the Boss pedal because I never <laughs> own pedals. I can never afford pedals. Like my mom got me a, a Crybaby for Christmas mm -hmm. because because Kirk Hammett and Jerry Cantrell played, yep. um, and I needed that wah pedal to play Man in the Box. You know, yeah, <laughs> you sure did. <laughs> so it was like that was that was like the extent of my quest for tone. Every, otherwise, you know, I eventually got a um, you know a stereo chorus PV amp, and I was happy with like all the settings. You know, all the chorus and the reverb and the two channels, everything like that. Um, it wasn't until I got into college, I came to Portland to go to Lewis and Clark, and I started studying jazz guitar with Dan Balmer. And if you don't know who Dan Balmer is, he's kind of like Portland's John Schofield. He can like do anything jazz. You gotcha. know, he's been yeah. he's been playing he's been playing professionally since he was nineteen in Portland, and uh, he can do the fusion thing. He can do the straight ahead thing. He you know he, he just does everything. Um, and that's when I started really kind of paying attention to tone and I wanted to get this jazz tone. And so, you know, I was playing a, a Carvin DC 127 at the time. And, uh, you know, as soon as I started doing that stuff, I bought a polytone amp, which is, you know, the, the requisite jazz amp. Okay. You know, it's like this little, this little amp that's got, it's got the jazzy marshmallow tone, you know? So you, you switch to the neck pickup, you roll <laughs> your tone mm -hmm. completely off and you get that, you know, yep. that really, really mm -hmm. kinda muffled, kind of muffled. Yeah. yeah. And you, and you play like West Montgomery with your thumb, you know, and, and you, that's when I really started trying to get into tone. But then of course I was playing in a, a solid body. I'm like, what am I doing playing jazz with a solid body? I need a, <laughs> yeah. I need an arch top. It's the only way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I started looking around. And so this was this was like 97, 98. And um and and at that time the the Asian market hadn't improved like it has today. Mm -hmm. Like you can go into like if if this was if this story was happening today, I would be able, I would have walked into Guitar Center 
and bought a $500 Ibanez archtop totally. off the wall yeah. and, and been yeah. happy with it. Would it would have been great. Yep. Mm-hmm. And and um but but at that time even even like the even like the Epiphone, you know, um Joe Pass Emperor model was still 1200 bucks. And and that was just really? so so beyond my my range yeah. and so I was just like, well, I I guess I'll just have to Subtle with with playing electric guitar, and I was playing. You know, I, it was fine. I was playing in a, in a band in Portland at the time. Uh, you know, being the lead guitarist. Um, you know, so I, I still needed I still needed to do that kind of thing, mm-hmm. and I couldn't afford to have more than one guitar at a time. Yeah. <laughs> so so I was okay with that. But but then I was in Powell's Books one day, and uh, I was in the music section, and I was just looking for. And you know, you know, they had biographies, tab books, all this kind of stuff. I was just perusing along, and I found this book, and it's this one right here. Oh, he brought it. Uh-huh. Making an Archtop Guitar ah. by Robert Benedetto. Uh-huh. And I've actually saw that. I've seen that before. Yes. Yeah, and I and I pulled it off the, sh- the shelf, and I started thumbing through it, and I'm like, this is amazing. There are people, like, there are just dudes who build guitars, right? <laughs> so, and, you know, I mean, this time, I mean, I was still, I, I think, and I think in your per, in your progression as a as a guitar-playing human consumer of guitars, you probably go through this progression of thinking, like, all guitars are made in factories. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then at some point in time, you learn about this thing called the, the boutique market, the uh-huh. underground of, of boutique guitars. Yeah, it's dangerous when you and find out about very that. Very dangerous. And so this was, if you also think about the time here, so this was, you know, 97, 98. Um, this was when, like, the internet was just kind of starting to get more accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe if you had dial-up in your, you know, in your... In your apartment, um, and you know, you uh-huh. could do, you could do web searches and stuff. I was still, you know, searching it at school and stuff on their computers. And it took yeah. so long to load a page. Yeah, and, and yeah. then you'd get some where you wanted to go, and best can't go there. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and and so I started searching and researching. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's actually a lot of people who do this. And it was, and I and and a couple of years later, I got a, a subscription to the Guild of American Luthiers quarterly journal called. Um, American Luthery, and um, I, I kind of realized that this was sort of at this new blossoming of Luthery in, mm-hmm. in America in particular and in the world, where um, where people were getting more connected with with boutique instruments, um, and and more people were buying books like Benedetto's book here. Also, this other one here called uh, Guitar Making Tradition and Technology by William Campiano and Jonathan Nadelson. Also, Make Your books. Own Electric Guitar by Melvin Hiscock uh, with a foreword by Brian May, which is really cool. There he's, you go. He's a, he's a British guy, um, obviously. But um, so these, these books <laughs> started British coming guy. out. <laughs> yeah. These books started coming out. Um, there also began, began uh, in the late 90s um, online Luthery forums, like the Musical Instrument Makers that, Forum, that which early? is still around. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Really. Um, okay. I wouldn't have thought that. The original Luthiers Forum came along a little or the official Luthiers Forum, OLF, came along a little bit long, wait later. Um, the, the Australia New Zealand Luthiers Forum. And then it's just kind of like gone crazy since then. So suddenly, like late 90s, early 2000s, you could get a ton of information about how to build guitars. And, you know, based on my, you know, kind of 
messing around, taking things apart and seeing how they work. And also my dad's kind of a jack of all trades kind of guy, you know, like I helped him finish out three rooms in our house, you know, um, you know, doing framing and electrical and drywall and all that kind of stuff. My, my dad, um, he's, he's got this very like problem solving attitude where it's like, you can take anything and build anything. Like, like he, he, he built my, my sister, a, a playhouse out of completely recycled wood. Nice. Um, That's awesome. You know, and my mom, my mom likes to refinish, uh, antique furniture, like oak furniture, like, like this piano that you got here with this beautiful oak tiger, you know, figure on it stuff. My mom would find stuff like that in the dump, you know, like tables and chairs and she'd refinish it. And if it needed a new part, my dad would replicate parts to, awesome. to, so, so I, I grew up with this kind of, kind of notion of like, well, if you, you don't have it, you can make it and, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, you can take things apart and put them back together and they still work. Yeah. So I could do this. I could totally do this. So <laughs> a couple of years later in, in my, in my apartment in Southwest Portland, I decided I'm going to try to do this. You know? <laughs> so I spent, I went, I went to, um, I went to Gilmore Hardwoods, um, over in North, Northwest Portland and I bought I bought some maple and some walnut and some um, some alder, basically enough wood for like a neck through um, guitar with a with a quilted maple top. And uh, I started, you know, hacking at this wood on the. This apartment had a had a little deck out the back, you know, and I, I had a router by this time, <laughs> making noise, <laughs> trying to do it, you know, the summer in the middle of the day when nobody was home. Um, and uh and that was that was that that guitar is the general shape of my iris model now um that asymmetrical and it was going to be it was going to be actually an eight string charlie hunter style guitar in the in the novak style with the three bass strings and the five guitar strings because i had gotten through my, you know my my jazz kind of i kind of got off the arch top thing i never built an arch top i probably never will um but uh, I got way into Charlie Hunter and and researching all the fan fret stuff that Ralph Novak was doing with the Novak's guitars, and that just really clicked with me. It made a lot of sense. And the Charlie Hunter guitar is the best way to kind of understand it. Is that you know you have bass and guitar combined together. I'm not familiar with that, so I'm going to take so take so a, yeah. A internet peek here, real so quick. So Charlie Hunter, yeah. um, he he's from the Bay Area. Um, kind of came out in the, like, I think it was 93 or so when his first album came out. He was on Blue Note Records. Um, but he was um, he was trying to do this this thing in jazz. It's called chord melody playing. So you're, you're basically playing melodies and playing chords and bass lines to accompany yourself. So you're kind of like doing everything at once. And he wanted to expand that by stretching the, the lows and the highs. And so he had this custom guitar built. The first one was a seven string that he had Novak's build, a Ralph Novak build. And um, it was just like a couple notes low. It was like a, like a low A and an E or something like that. Um, and then he had another one built that w went E-A-D for the bass strings. And they were labella black tape wound uh, strings. And then A-D-G-B-E. For the top end of the guitar and this the the splay of the multi-scale i think it was like 20 
24 and three quarters of 25 to like 29 and a half. So it was just like oh, this wow. massive oh, wow. splay, right? Wow. But you needed to go, you needed to start going into short scale bass range to get those lowest strings to actually work yeah. bass range. And so that's kind of what he started doing. And, and, um, I saw him a bunch when, when he was, when he was first touring, um, did a lot of West coast touring, probably saw him like eight or nine times in Portland. Um, and uh, and that that made a lot of sense to me. Like I want to do that. So that first guitar I was trying to build in 2002 was gonna be an eight string like that. And I designed it and I did all the research with like all the hardware and all the parts and everything like that. Made parts lists, made price lists for everything because I was gonna try to do it as as cost effectively as I could. But I got into the the woodworking and. I started running into right away the problems of, I mean, there are people that you can, you know, you can make a guitar with like a pocket knife, you know, mm -hmm. um, if, if you're in dire enough straits and you, you know, you need to, but, um, I wanted to do it right. And mm -hmm. so I, I had, you know, I had a cordless drill and I had a router and that mm -hmm. was it. And a couple like chisels and some files and stuff. And I just knew that this was not going to work. And I ended up like making some mistakes with the router, some scary mistakes with the router. You don't want to make mistakes with routers. No. no. They take body parts off in a hurry. Yes, <laughs> they sure do. Before you know they're gone. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah. So I, I made it out with my all my fingers and and just this desire to to really make this work in a better way. Like I need to start collecting more tools. And it wasn't until we bought our first house in St. John's in North Portland that I had a shop and I started you know, I Sold the guitar. I sold that Carvin for a so I could buy a bandsaw. <laughs> um, bought a drill press. You know, got a, a jointer. Got some other tools and things where I could actually shape wood in a way that was going to be accurate and safe. Right. You know. Um, and uh, so it was about 2008 that I started making sawdust in a real and meaningful way with a with an actual instrument in mind. We ended up moving in 2009 to where we live now in Lake Oswego on the south side of Portland and had to like build my entire shop from scratch, like walls, electrical drywall, oh, right. everything like that, benches in, into my garage. Um, and then I started kind of picked up where I left off. And uh, so the seventh string that I brought today was completed in 2014. Um, so it's like, it's really stretched out, you know, this, this, from where I started playing guitar to to you know interest in jazz to really getting connect you know connected with this very specific sound that um, that that was jazz and and you know finding Charlie Hunter and and really kind of going down the rabbit hole with that multi scale thing with his instrument and 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 doing a lot of research to understand what that meant and how that worked. Um, and then, you know, eventually just trying it out myself. So my first guitar was a seven string multi-scale. <laughs> There's nothing, nothing like normal or easy about that. Yeah. You know, like mm -hmm. all the things that I read for years and years in books and start off with a Fender kit. Yeah. Luthier's <laughs> forums and stuff like that. You're going to want to start with something simple. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it sounds like when uh, Leon was starting Pelican Noiseworks and yeah. I was like, I was like, maybe you should start with like a fuzz face or something, something simple. And he's like, nah, no. his first design is the Pelotar, which is yeah. like this crazy yeah. complicated fuzz. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, yeah. okay, that's just well, how he I is. Guess you're a yeah. wizard. Yep. Yeah. I wouldn't be able to do it. That's for sure. Yeah. It, in it, in it, in it, it's playable, you know, it's, yeah. it, it worked out pretty well. And then, 
And then, you know, based on that, I found out some things about my design that didn't quite work, you know, geometrically in terms of like neck attachment and body bout shapes and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I, I changed it. Um, so the black guitar that you have now is sort of the second generation of body shape. Um, and uh, there's a third generation after that that changes like the heel, the way where it attaches. Um, the heel is just shaped a little bit differently. The obviously I had I, I I started making my bridges. Um, well, had them made. My very smart friend John Songson, who's a, a CNC guy in his day job, he helped me with the with the CAD files and and actually made the first round of of, of bridges um at his at his job on the weekend he like went on the weekend and <laughs> used nice. used company tools he had permission it was okay <laughs> yeah, yeah um but uh you know the, never done anything like that yeah jess has never <laughs> jess has never machined anything on company tools no no oh, um, my house <laughs> <laughs> i do the headstock a little bit differently the headstock transition now the way the way that the the zero fret is and then the string guide nut behind it is different now um and then and then i you know i so that's my original design the iris and now i have uh, another uh, another model that can be either no cutaway or a single cutaway called the alma those are named after my grandmothers by the way oh cool i like that yeah. that's awesome yeah there were some pretty sweet ladies who left this world too early and so just like like when i think about them they were just people of unconditional love you know yeah um, just that, that, that kind of grandma, you know? And, and so I, when I was trying to come up with names for things, just like, this is just the perfect tribute. you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. That's great. I love that kind of stuff. So yeah, obviously you started off all in on the multi-scale thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so this was the first time I, I played some Ormsby's, uh, just briefly. My first experience with it was a Strandberg mm -hmm. that, uh, listener and, Tone Mob moderator Jason Fuzzmonger <laughs> brought to Fear the Riff, and he he was like, "You gotta check this out." And I was looking at it, and I'm like, "Hmm, I don't know." Doesn't about this. look like it's for me. Yeah, it doesn't look like any of my business. I'm a bit of a traditionalist in in my guitar taste. Yeah, and uh, I was super also like with the Strandberg. I was like, "This neck has angles, like." What's that like? That's not going to work. I'm used to smooth, round necks, right. and it has You know, I actually, I, so so. <laughs> in addition to all the other things that I've trying out with that first seven string, I actually tried doing a faceted neck on that one, uh -huh. and um, I found out that I did not like it. I I was uh, like shocked. I was like, this this shouldn't be comfortable, but it is. It's fine. Like it wasn't. I didn't spend enough time with it to really know like how I felt about it. But I was like. I can totally play this. Yeah, I, yeah. But I visually, I was like, that's not even going to be playable, yeah, like, is what I thought. And so I was, that was my very, very first time playing anything with multi-scale or anything different. And I was like, wow, maybe this is a cool thing. Mm -hmm. Played a couple Ormsby's at NAMM, played your guitars, what was it? Would have been two years ago? Or yeah, just, uh, something at, like that. Yeah, Co's One Day yeah. Uh, yeah. event. And and I was like, wow, okay, this is really something. But it wasn't until you let me borrow this, this one here, and I've been playing it for... Little little, uh, what two months now or something like that? Yeah, yeah. been playing it really regularly, and I I am like ah, I'm I'm into this. Good. Like I'm into it. Like I it's it's it didn't take what I thought it was gonna take. I'm I I it, I thought it was gonna take a major adjustment, and like 
completely changed the way I approached the instrument, and it really didn't. I do different things on it because I do different things depending on what guitar I'm playing. Right. But I'm like this. I don't even have to think about it at all. Well, good. So it's it's just I just play it, and well, and it didn't take me. It didn't take me a long time to get to that point. It was like after the I played it for an hour, like all right, I can play this guitar now. No, I mean as good as I can possibly play guitar, which is not that good. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what you're doing. I, no, I don't. <laughs> well, my my first experience was at the one day show when you brought that guitar, and I was just like, I am too stupid for that. That's like, yeah, I, that's what I'm I thought. Really like. I, I don't understand that. And then you're like, no, just sit down and play it. And I was mm -hmm. like, all right, fine. And I did. And I was just immediately like, oh, this is actually super comfortable. And it's, it's a lot more welcoming than it, than it seems to a lot of people. And I know a couple of guys in the group kind of said that too. When we said, when Blake said that you were coming on, They're like, I don't feel smart enough to play it. And I was like, neither did I, but it, it doesn't take to, that much. You, to you get don't used have to, to be. It's, yeah. it's not a. It's, it, it, you. It, they <coughs> look because they look different. Yeah. I think we immediately, especially guitar players, because we're all like dinosaurs. And mm -hmm. it, is it nitro? <laughs> is it, it better be nitro yeah. for the tone? <laughs> right. And it's got traditional PAFs. Yeah. Um. You know, like we're dinosaurs in some ways, and so it, we look at things, and it's like that's different than what I'm used to, and I don't. I probably won't be able to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably not that perception is not helped by the fact that the people who tend to gravitate towards those type of guitars tend to be more technical right. players yeah. and less, you know, guys like me. Yeah. Um, I, I don't, you know, I think that's just the perception is that you must have to be really good in order to play one or something like yeah. that. But it's not true. So not at all. Um, no, yeah. I mean, I, th I think you can play 12 bar blues on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, so you, 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 uh, you mentioned two other, other builders, Strandberg and Ormsby, which I, who I have a, a, an incredible amount of, of respect for. And, and the fact that, that my guitars are amongst the, the multi-scales that you've selected, that, that means a lot. They, but, but, but since you mentioned those guys, I think I think we can we can have a conversation about what a a player can expect from multi scale, because mm -hmm. if you were to pick up a Strandberg and an Ormsby and one of mine, you would find some very different experiences. Definitely, mm -hmm. and part of it has to do with uh, the styling, the body styling. Um, I mean, obviously, the Strandberg is headless and um, and it's got these you know it's kind of radical cutaways. If if you if you if you do your homework with um, with Strandberg, he's got a he's got a website that's kind of hard to find. There's there's like the main Strandberg website that's like the store, you know, but he's got another website that he what's it called the Strandbergs. I'll tell you later, and you can post it. We can post it on the on the Facebook or something. Yeah, we'll like put that. it in the show notes. Um, but he but basically what he did was for several years before Strandberg kind of went real-time full-time you know public offering kind of thing he he was sort of dabbling and he was ola strandberg and he had this blog where he was posting all of his experiments with things oh cool and so he was he was an engineer he was a cnc guy and so he had access to all these tools and everything like that mm -hmm. but what did the first thing he did was is we took a strat and he like reshaped it to be ergonomic huh. Because because um, if you're gonna if you're gonna ergonomicize something, um, the first thing that you really need to do is change the neck angle. 
mm-hmm. um, to, 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 to be more steep, you know, kind of more pointed towards your, sho- towards your shoulder. And uh, traditional shapes like, like strats and LPs, they sit on your leg one way or the other, and they don't really, they don't really fall into a place that allows that neck projection that's, that kind of goes up over your shoulder in a way that you you bring your hand up comfortably too. Mm-hmm. Are you trying to tell me that me wearing my guitar at my knees is not ergonomic? <laughs> Tim Armstrong would beg to differ. <laughs> There's something about the tone. Though. Yeah. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> it's not it's not being deadened on your belly anymore, right? Yeah. I don't know. I'm I'm I've always had my guitars way too low, and it's probably a, yeah. a detriment to everyone but but strange punk but, rock yeah that's right <laughs> but strandberg he started experimenting with basically a, a strat shape and if you look at the guitar it's it's basically a super strat with some with some extra cutaways in the lower bout yeah. um and it's headless it's a su- it, it really is a super strat if you lay it over a super strat shape it's a super strat i, I have a question about the headless stuff and yeah maybe i need to get ola on here to tell me about it but one thing is is it purely an aesthetic choice on his part or is it is there a function i don't understand why you would want a headless guitar basically it, it change it totally changes the the distribution of weight okay so so um on a six string you know it it, it just it it might feel you might not notice a, a huge difference in a six string but when you go to seven and eight string and that head starts keeps getting bigger and more tuners start getting loaded up there um you're 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 gonna end up with an instrument that just overall feels more heavy and more neck heavy, mm-hmm. and um, the the headless design completely removes that. And you know, and the um, the uh, the Ned Ned um, Steinberger, right? Stein. The oh yeah, yes. Stein, those two get me. Yes, Steinberger. Yes, <laughs> Steinberger. Strand. Um, wait, wait. Who? Yeah, they both but did kind of the what? You know, the, those that kind of like delta wing shape kind of thing and and that that was very minimalist but that was super those were super light you know um and and it so it changes if you want to go towards ergonomic and like steve klein built some guitars like that too that are that kind of weird kind of teardrop fin kind of shape that sits in your lap really comfortably where you don't have to be wrestling it with your hand just like all the weight is in the instrument and it's in front of you and there's no weight out on the end swinging around out there there are there are going to be some some tonal changes too because the um the headstock does create something of a counterweight and changes the way um the the neck frequencies um affect the tone and there i've seen some laser what's it called laser interferometry where you take these laser these measurements and measure like these super fine micro frequency vibrations and you can see it in like a i didn't know that was a thing and now i want to try it with so many things yeah (laughs) yeah no but but the um you start getting into like really super nerdy guitar and instrument acoustics and you start finding out that like even even your explorer here has a very specific sound signature because of the shape um and because of the way that weights and densities are distributed in its wacky shape Really? Um, yeah. So because I've always been that guy that's like, if it's a, you know, I know that different guitars <laughs> sound different. Like every guitar player knows that yeah, yeah. a Les Paul is not a Les Paul, you know, necessarily. But I've always been under the assumption that you know an SG and a Les Paul are gonna be pretty close to the same thing. But even the shape of the body and the way things yeah. mount up actually yeah. changes it 
Wow. I mean, in very minute and very subtle ways, but um, but but you know, taking the headstock off of a guitar is gonna is gonna change it. Um, and but but um, I think I think Strandberg was mainly doing that for the ergonomic perspective. Um, and um, and and then you know, change you know, changing all those bout cutaways so they sit on your legs in different ways. So you can sit it in classical position. You can sit it in a traditional, you know, on your right hip kind of position. Different ways like that. Um, so so you know, Strandberg has has a very sp specific um, kind of plan, and right. that is like it's gonna be. His mission is to make a, a a more comfortable ergonomic instrument, and that's that where that that neck shape comes in. Um, it's supposed to reduce tension across your your thumb and how your thumb and that grabbing motion. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, there's some there's some ergonomic theory about flat facets versus curved facets and things. Um, but it's uh, yeah. I mean, visually, it's it's pretty radical. I mean, the headless is one thing, and then those extra cutaways and stuff. But you know what? If you look around on if you look around on Instagram, and you search out, um, especially multi-scale makers and people who are doing headless, Strandberg has become the newest, most copied guitar oh. shape. Oh, oh yeah. absolutely. <laughs> yep. You know, it's absolutely like, it's like Strats, Tellys, Les Pauls, and now Strandberg. It's mm -hmm. people are definitely many, copying that, especially yeah. in the last five years. It's crazy seeing how many people, um, if not identical copies, something very, very similar, mm -hmm. you know, like pushing that here and there. Well, I mean, he's obviously had some success with it. I think if I'm not remembering incorrectly, I think Sweetwater picked him up recently. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, like there's a lot of interest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. But um, you know, visually, Strandberg's very striking, um, and and the actually the the we'll get into we can get into like the the scale splays and stuff like that. But the actual scale splays on Strandberg are pretty um, conservative in terms of what's what's out there, and especially you know. So the next company we talked about, Ormsby, um, Perry's you know known for basically a super strat shape with a really dramatic yeah multi-scale mm. um i mean even his um even his six strings it's two inches splay right away yeah wow. um which is i think probably some of the some of the widest but he he also is going back to some of the i think he's going back to some of ralph novak's original kind of observations about multi-scale like how far do you spread it out and i i read an article where ralph novak said once you reach a scale difference of two inches, you start noticing some really interesting things happening with the way that the instrument starts to perform. Hmm. And so that's where Ormsby starts, two inches. Um, and and so that's going to feel really different all across the neck because the this, this, this frets are splayed and they're tilted in very kind of extreme ways mm -hmm. on both ends of the fretboard. Um, my instruments, I, I'm probably a little bit more close to... Um, Strandberg in terms of like the being conservative and like how far things are spread. Um, and, and the, the, the way that I lay out the frets is also, um, is, is different than both of those companies. So, so how, you know what we get, should do, you know what we just, should do before we get too far ahead of ourselves. There's some people that might, this might be the first time they've heard about this. Yeah. So maybe we should explain the, like like 
to a fifth grader like I would require. Like, what is the entire point? Like, why why do this at all? Yeah, we're kind of skirting around that, aren't we? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So, um, I I have an, a, a variety of lengths of elevator speeches. Like, are you going up two floors? You're going up twenty floors. <laughs> I mean, we got time. We I can know, go as many floors as as you the, think it would take. Um, the really quick explanation that I give to people at at guitar shows is, um. The, the basic idea with most multi-scale guitarists is that you are adding length to the bass side. And when you add that length, you add a little bit more tension. It provides a little bit more kind of snap and pop to your tone. Um, it, it also, a longer string also has more harmonic component. So it's going to be a more interesting sound. Um, and so on a six string, displaying the frets like that, multi-scale, it's cool. It sounds good. Um, it really shines though, as soon as you start drop tuning it, because now, it, you know, you drop down a step. You see, if you're going to, to, even if you're doing a drop D, just like standard tuning drop D, that low, that six string now feels, still feels good. It feels excellent. It does it, you don't notice any major loss in, in tension and flabbiness or anything mm -hmm. like that. And if you wanted to go like, full-time drop D on an instrument, you wouldn't need to, you wouldn't need to do any sort of string changes. You would need to have like a heavy bottom set or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, even if you were to do, you know, like the, the genty popular um, drop C. So everything's down a step and then drop the six string to a C. That's what I put this in for yeah. quite a while. It's standard now, but yeah, and those are elevens on there, right? Yeah, and it doesn't feel too like floppy and loose. No, I, in fact, I if I I wanted to go lower, but I was like, I think I need bigger strings to yeah, go lower. You, to go but lower. you might only you know need, need to do like a heavy bottom set though. You might not even need to go to twelves, um, or you know, like it's like String Joy does like half sets, right? Like mm -hmm. eleven point mm -hmm. fives or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Like even something like that would probably work really well. Um, so as soon as you stop drop tuning a multi-scale instrument, you start realizing like, oh, this it still sounds awesome, and I'm not losing a lot of feel to it here. And if if I have to do any string gauge changes, they're minor. Hmm. Um, as soon as you start going to seven and eight string, though, you want a, a the low pitches want a longer scale in order to vibrate. In, in a way that has fullness of tone and has a good feel and so that it's right. equal across. So if you go to seven string to eight string, you want to have, you want to have extra length there. Otherwise you, you do have to compensate with really wildly ridiculous string gauge sets, you know? Um, and, and that only works to a certain point. Um, if you go, if you start going to like 13s or, or more on a short scale instrument, you start running into uh, tuning problems with each string within itself. It's um, so funny that you bring that up because I you brought up string joy. I was talking to Scott the other day, and he routinely because he does so many custom sets and things like that, he gets wild requests that he's like has to be like I'll sell you that, but it's not going to work. Yeah, like yeah. he's always getting like these guys who want to do extended range, like shorter than standard scale yeah. stuff. And it's like, he's like, that's not going to do what you think it's going yeah, to do, yeah. you know? And it's interesting that how many people are trying to do that. There, There's this thing that happens, it's called inharmonicity, where the string, you may be able to intonate it um, open, you know, you do your open and you do your, your, your 12th fret 
harmonic and then you intonate it at the 12th fret by by playing it and everything's fine but as, mm -hmm. as soon as you actually start chording things mm -hmm. it's out of tune because the strings are out of tune with themselves because they're so thick they cannot vibrate along their full length right they're actually it's not of long enough scale length yeah yeah okay so so when you when you start adding that length to those low strings you start getting the scale lengths that the that those pitches need to be able to really speak and to be able to be in tune as well so if you're if you're if you were to walk up to a jmr a strandberg and an ormsby on the wall in a shop and look at them there would be a couple of things that you'd want to think about right away the first thing is um what are the scale lengths chosen and so multi-scale means each string has a different scale to unto itself but the way that we do it when we build them is that we we choose a treble side so the high string and we choose a bass side low string scale and you kind of connect the dots right between them right so my my guitars i go for a six string i go 25 inches on the treble side so that's like a prs scale and then a 26 on the bass. So that's half an inch longer than a Fender scale length. Mm -hmm. So already you can start to kind of get an idea about what each end of the fretboard, or which side of the fretboard is going to sound like. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that half an inch more than a, a, a Fender scale, you know, that's, that's, that's going to be something that you're going to feel and you're going to hear it. And you're going to hear it in more sort of like a kind of a boomy kind of tone um and kind of a snappier and kind of quicker kind of feel to it um i think it's excellent strandberg uses 25 to 25 and a half so going from prs to 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 fender right all within the same thing right there like i said before arms be going 25 and a half to 27 and a half right away and so um that 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 right there is going to give you some some options for like what what kind of playability do I want to hear? Not not that not that. I mean, we've got people who play you know thirty five inch five string basses. You know, like right. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's like yeah. our fingers can handle a lot. You know, if you're talking about someone playing an upright bass, you know, your your finger spread is, is is able to handle a lot. It's just how much do you want in relation to everything else that's in that package? Do you um, change the the spread of the scales? Does it change based on what you start like for instance like if you start with like a 27 inch scale on the treble side do you change the actual ratio or do you stick with that one inch on like a six string so so my um my guitars the the bait the the bridge bass design requires that my scale lengths are always one inch difference okay so so one of your one of your uh listeners on the facebook page asked can you do baritone and so that was yes. dustin Shout yes. out to Dustin. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I could build something that would, um, you know, it depends on what you want to use for your bass scale for a baritone. Is it 27 or 28? So if it was 28 on the bass side, it would have to be 27 on the treble side. Gotcha. If it Good. was, if it was a 27 inch on the bass, it would have to be 26 on the treble side. So, so my, my bridges have to have a, a specific difference scale difference built into it gotcha um other other builders who do individual bridges you can you can do whatever you want <laughs> and add, add you know however you need it um so so the next thing that you would look at when you're looking at um those three guitars hanging on the wall 
you'd, you'd find your, your scale difference. And those scales, the scales that you get tell you something about that playability and something about the tone. The longer the scale, you're going to get more of that, that, that um, kind of bigger sound. Um, a, a friend of mine named Kevin, he borrowed, he borrowed uh, the, the twin to this one, the, the walnut-topped one that you guys played mm. at the co-show there. He borrowed it for a while, and he's just like, I keep getting this feeling that I'm playing a baritone, but I'm, I'm not. It's in standard <laughs> tuning, but the tone mm. is that that kind of big, round sound, that really you know snappy, poppy tone that you get from a baritone. And he's like, I love that, but it's you know it's just half of an inch. It's all it's doing it. Mm. Um, the next thing that you would you would see on these instruments is what's called the neutral fret. So you don't have to have one fret. That's perpendicular to the center line, but most people do, and it's there. There, um, it can it can vary quite a lot. So I put my neutral fret at the twelfth fret. So what this does is it creates like a zone of sort of straighted straight frettedness around it. Mm -hmm. So if you go upstream, downstream, about three to five frets, you're going to find the most kind of normal feeling area. I found my, my first guitar, I, I did put the, the neutral fret at the seventh fret, and I found that I found that it was fine until I started getting up into the like above the 15th fret. Okay. And then the rotation of the frets over. Because they start going the other way. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So instead of rotating away from you, they're rotating for you. And I found that my hand was needing to kind of stack up and crunch up in a funny way. So I said, okay, from from here on out, I'm going to put the neutral at the 12th fret. And so that that makes that area around the 15 and the 17 more straight than if it was, if that straight fret was farther downstream, um, if it was at the 7th or the 9th or something like that. On the Strandberg guitar, the perpendicular fret is at the zero. Oh, really? really? Yeah, it's at the nut. So huh. everything falls towards you. So it almost feels like it doesn't really have one because you're not, you're not ever going to get to it, basically. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're, mm. it's it, you're, ne you never have the strings falling or the frets falling away from you. They're always rotating towards you, and I think mm. I'm not really sure why he chose to do that. Um, the the only thing I can I can guess is that it might have something to do with actual actual manufacturing of the body. Because the way that the body where the bridge connects is angled, mm -hmm. and I think I, I don't I don't know it, it that 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 makes it sound trivial that you know you would you would make a manufacturing choice for for like a a layout of a very very specific and intentional kind of system, but it might be I, I don't know it's it's um it's it's only half an inch of splay mm -hmm. right so it's that's not that big of a deal yeah. um you know on on his seven strings the neutral fret is at the ten okay. So, so I mean, he does move it around. On the eight strings, the neutral fret's at the seventh. Huh. Um, on the Ormsby, he always puts the neutral fret at the ninth, no matter what. No matter what. And and so he's got he's got some consistency going on there because his his treble side is always twenty five and a half, and he he adds I think it's like point three to point two to the the bass side, so somewhere around like a quarter to three eighths of an inch for the six to seven to eight because the 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 six to the eighth string 
the the the, the spread doesn't change that much. Um, so that that's kind of like when you're looking at when you're looking at multi scales, and this I think this is the thing that's really interesting and really exciting about multi scale is that there are so many there are so many more builders and companies doing multi scale, and you have a lot of options for scales for scale difference and for neutral fret location, all of which kind of plays into how you might want to kind of style your playing and your in your tone. Um, you mentioned, and, can we go back for just yeah. a second? You mentioned that you don't have to have a neutral fret, but no. most people do. Is that because you want to have some straight frettedness on the guitar or why would you choose to not have one if for those that I don't think, have one? I think it's just, I think it's just kind of like reference. I mean, it, that, that actually might be a, a manufacturing reference point. Oh, okay. Just having, having a, a, a good kind of with, 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 I can tell you from building my guitars where there are so few things that are perpendicular to the center line. <laughs> it's really, it really is nice to have one thing yeah. that's just straight. Right. You know, so you can reference Otherwise, it. Yeah. Everything else is asymmetrical on my instruments. It, it, it's, um, sometimes I spend a lot of time with, you know, you, rulers and, and like, you know, I, you, you've seen on my Instagram page, like my layout with a laser level, yeah. you know, I mean, I spend a lot of time working on that center line mm -hmm. to be true because it's so hard to just look at it and see it. You mm -hmm. know? Yeah. <laughs> so, that makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it could be anywhere. It could be anywhere. Um, it seems like, it seems like there is a trend towards um, more, more builders putting the, the neutral fret at the ninth fret. That is on a on a twenty four fret instrument. That is basically exactly in the middle of the fret board. Oh, okay. Um, but you know, in my experience, it, that wasn't the issue. It wasn't the issue of like creating this, you know, sort of like symmetrical um, splaying of the frets. My my experience was on that first guitar was that in the low positions, it's not a big deal. You know, it's like like reaching to that on my so on my on my seven strings I go twenty five and a half to twenty seven. So so playing a twenty seven inch scale and reaching down to the first three frets isn't a big deal. You you know your hand is going to spread out a little bit more. Right, it's not a big deal. Mm -hmm. What I found was that it's that cascading of the frets towards you in the upper fifteen to nineteen fret range that was really bizarre. Yes. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to shift it down. Um, on one, on, Co told me, Coach, Coach Schneider told me, he said, use the ladder example. So I, I, I did a, a, a podcast interview with him, on one of his podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he was asking me, like, how, how, he's like, you know, and he had one of my guitars with the One Day Show. And he's like, explain this whole neutral fret to me. And I said, well, imagine if you had a ladder, a really wonky ladder where, on the left side of the ladder, you had the rungs spread far apart. And on the right side of the ladder, you had the rungs closer together. So it looked like this radial kind of fan kind of thing, right? And imagine that you could, you could change the ladder's angles by moving those, the, the, the straight pieces up and down. Okay. Right? Mm -hmm. you, could, you can kind of parallelogram them so that they go up and down. So let's say that you wanted to work on um, your siding on the bottom of your house. So you put the put the, the ladder up against your house with the two feet resting flat on the floor. 
on the ground. You, you step onto the first rung and it's straight. And then it kind of starts angling as you go up. But that's okay. You're going to work down here. You're going to work down low. So you've got this mostly straight area. Right. But now tomorrow you need to work on the top window of the first floor. So, so you, you prop up one side. So now the middle of the ladder has a straight rung because that's where you're going to be doing most of your work. You go stand up there. Going to be kind of weird getting up to it <laughs> but once you're there you're going to work on your window up there and it's going to be kind of straight but now later on you need to work on the on, on the gutter so so you you make the top of the ladder even with the gutter it's going to be really wonky getting up there because down at the ground it's really really angled mm -hmm. but as soon as you get up to the top it's totally straight and it's going to be okay mm -hmm. so that's kind of like I don't know if that visual works for you, but I, I, I threw that out for him and he's like, okay, okay. So wherever that neutral fret is, wherever that neutral rung is, you get the most straightedness around it. Right. Yeah. And um, the things uphill and downhill from that, um, or on guitar, downhill, lower and uphill higher, <laughs> um, those things, the, that's, that's where you start getting a little bit more angle. How bad is the angle? How how much is it going to really mess up your work? Mm -hmm. It depends. Um, will you get used to it? Probably. <laughs> right. So kind of what I'm taking away from it is basically when you do it, when you do your straight fret at the 12th fret, you get a more even fan across both ways. Uh, you get you get more even straightedness in the upper registers where the frets are closer together. Mm-hmm. And you you don't want anything messing with that. You know, yeah. when you're when you're when you're trying to do intricate stuff, whether you're doing, you know, scale runs across the fretboard or where you're doing chords mm -hmm. up, you know, if you're trying to put you're trying to like fret chords yeah. <laughs> in the fifteenth to nineteenth fret range. Right. It ain't easy. Not a whole lot of people do, <laughs> but if you do that, you don't want anything to make that harder for you. No. Yeah. I'm just imagining if like you were trying to do a bar chord, but the frets were tilted. Yeah. At that mm -hmm. stage, it yeah. would be almost impossible. Yeah. It starts getting it starts getting kind of funky. So so I put it at the twelfth to allow upper fret access to be less weird. Yeah, because mm -hmm. like you were saying, playing playing down low on a guitar, it's not that's not that big of yeah. a deal if the yeah. frets are at a different angle. Yeah. I want to bring up one other thing too that I think is sometimes a, a misconception about about um Multi-scale. Strandberg made his guitars, and that, that's like his slogan and everything like that. It's all about the ergonomics. And the and he's designed the multi-scale to go with that. Um, Ormsby, I've heard him say that there is some ergonomic considerations in the way that he chose his scales and his neutral fret. I think that there are people, and I know this because because I, when I when I go to guitar shows and people walk up to the table, sometimes you'll like you'll see some friends walked up to the table, and one person has never seen multi scale before, and they're like, "What's going on there?" And the other friend goes, "Oh, it they're 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 rotated, they're they're fanned out there. It's all ergonomic. So like the way that your wrist rotates like this." Mm -hmm. And so there are people who out there who think multi scale is ergonomic first and foremost that was my first and perception I, of it. i don't think so like if you I, I think if you wanted to create you know if you wanted to make a checklist of things that you'd want to do on a guitar to be ergonomic i don't think the first thing would be yep ergonomic needs to be there the multi-scale needs to be there for ergonomics 
I think neck projection, neck angle being more like a classical position and making that easier to do would be your first thing. And if you look at, um, if you look at some like very specific ergonomic things like, like the Strandberg, like the Klein guitar, um, like my friend, Michael Sankey in, in Ottawa, um, they're, they're, they're very much, or like Rick Toon, um, where's Rick now? He's in, is he in New Jersey? Um, if you look at these guitars, they completely throw away this idea of what the traditional guitar looks like. And their, their body shapes are only for ergonomics and it's, how is it going to sit on your leg on your lap and have that neck projection in a way that allows you to just sit there and play it without the guitar fall, falling over. You don't have to like have a strap in a certain way. You don't have to be holding it up with your hand and playing it at the same time. It's just there. Um, I think multi-scale can go along with that because um, multi-scale can offer some things in terms of the other direction. Um, like for example, um, you mentioned Michael Sankey. The first time that I think the first time that he built a multi-scale guitar, he had a, a player, a jazz player, come to him and say, "I want a seven-string, but I want short scale." And he went, mm, "That's you're not going to get what we were right. talking about earlier, mm -hmm. right?" He's yeah. like, "That's not going to work for you." He says, "But mm -hmm. I've I've been you know thinking about this thing called multi-scale that I want to try out. Let me see what I can do." So what he ended up doing was, was he ended up instead of starting with a familiar standard scale on the treble side, you know, like 25 or 25 and a half. He started with that on the bass side. And I think what he ended up doing was something like 25 and a half on the bass side to 24 on the treble side. And <clears throat> this was because this guy did have some repetitive motion issues. He had some, some, some wrist injuries mm -hmm. and he wanted the short scale to make it easier to play. So by making the treble side smaller, and making it finger splay less, um, I think that he he ended up getting that ergonomic benefit. But when you're talking about most <laughs> most multi scales, adding one to two inches of right. splay yeah. on the base side. <laughs> if you think about the way your hand, like you know, like you put your hand out, like give me five, right? Mm. Now, someone said on the side, but if you did on the side where your thumb was rotating out, right. that starts getting, I mean, that's where, that's where your hand starts going. The farther that you have to reach, the more that you have to splay out your fingers for low, longer scale frets. Um, I wonder how so, many of the listeners did just what we were doing. Right? I, I don't know. <laughs> as soon as you said that, I was like, what? Oh, yeah, that's not comfortable. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that's what multi-scale is going to, you know, if you're if you're adding a lot of length to the bass side, that's what your hand does in that those first three frets is that you've got to rotate your hand out more. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not that's not comfortable. Um, so so if anything, multi-scale could be um potentially exacerbating it if you <laughs> if you have injuries right you know depending so, on how extreme and blah you right, know, all right. the other specs too so so um when when i see people step up to you know my table at guitar shows and say oh yeah it's for ergonomics you know you don't want to like insult people you say yes and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right it adds and, I, and then i give them my elevator speech and they go oh yeah i had a guy at the um at the rose quarter show just recently here um it was two friends, you know, but one was very uh, knowledge, knowledgeable and learned in the multi-scale because he plays a, um, 
a Dingwall base. Oh, okay. And Dingwall mm. bases are like they go from like thirty four to thirty seven inches on the. Good grief! <laughs> wow. And he's like, no, it's not about ergonomics. <laughs> it's not going to help your hand. He's like, it's all about, it's all about like, it's all about tone and it's all about you know just harmonics and everything just sounding better, you know, in these low, and and they 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 were in a band together and they play you know prog metal and stuff and they tune down and he's. He's like, yeah, I tuned that fifth string down to a low A, and it sounds glorious. And it's just like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Man. So, so you know, um, don't don't um, don't go to, don't look at a multi scan and be like, well, there's nothing wrong with my hands. I don't need ergonomics. You know, why would I do that? Go go explore multi scale. Go find out more about it because because it can do things for your tone, and it can do things for your tone if you like drop tuning, if you like extended range. Oh, and I do. Do mm. yeah. <laughs> do things. Do things. You know, like like baritone, for example. Going back to the idea of the baritone, you know, if you if you don't like the idea of if you were going to do a twenty-seven or a twenty-eight inch scale, if you don't like the idea of the treble strings being at that at that length, well, guess what? Multi scale can give you the lower end and still have a relatively playable high end. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I I think that. There, there are enough builders out there doing enough of a difference of scale choices, scale difference, neutral fret, and body styling that I think that you can that you can find what you're looking for. Um, I mean, I, I I very very much chose not to make something that looks like a Strat or a Les Paul. Um, there are enough people doing that, um, and I I think I think the asymmet asymmetrical body styles work very much with the asymmetrical bridge placement and all yes. that mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah, I agree. And um, I so was just looking at my Les Paul one thinking that would look funny if it was, if it was multi-scale, like yeah. it would look kind of weird. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's, it's, um, you know, it's possible, but you know, you'd have to decide if that's the aesthetic that you want. Um, so, so it's, you know, definitely, definitely go, ch you know, check out. And if there, if there are, if there are, Strandbergs at Sweetwater or Guitar Center or something like that. Go take one off a wall and just sit down for a couple minutes and, and mm -hmm. check it out because it's it's um it it is about tone. It is about exploring new. Really, I mean, it's it sounds cheesy to say it's like a new frontiers of tone with with different scale lengths and different combinations and um you know like and, and pickups respond differently. Mm -hmm. To to um to multi scale with like different harmonic content of the string, it's um it's it's pretty cool. I'm just diving back into the Facebook group mm -hmm. real quick to make sure mm -hmm. we didn't miss anybody's questions. And oh yeah, this this might uh, it's not obviously something that you do, but you might know something about it. Corey uh Corey Nigro wants to know about the guitars with the squiggly frets. Oh right. Oh yeah yeah <laughs> yeah that's right. Yeah. You know I've not played I've not played one of those um. But uh, they are they are a cool adaptation to to uh, the guitar neck the way and you can do them you can do them with or without multi scale um, the the idea is that you are creating more perfect intonation for each string yeah and um, and and you know with with the Western equal temperament scale everything almost everything except for like the octave and the fifth, almost everything is out of tune a little bit so that it can 
that it can be in tune with everything else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Cause the natural, the natural sequence of overtones, um, does not work well with playing in a lot of different keys. Um, and, and I was like, there's a whole bunch of musical history for that. You know, I mean, the, in box time, the, 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 the well-tempered clavier was like, somebody came up with this thing called equal temperament. So you could play in all keys. And so he's like, this is cool. I'm going to write music in all keys now. <laughs> and, and, um, it, it, to, to demonstrate and to prove that it was possible. Otherwise there was something called just intonation before that. And just intonation sounds really amazing. And I've, I, I hear because it follows the natural sequence of of um, of overtones, and everything is more in tune, and it sounds more just sonorous and beautiful, and uh, and consonant. And apparently, the 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 true temperament frets allow you to do that more, closer. But it do, it is pretty crazy looking. It looks it's really and, weird. And <laughs> yeah, somebody somebody mentioned like, I hate to be the tech doing the you know the luthier doing the fret job on that. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if you do. I don't know. You think if you, they just replace them? I think you. I think you just replace them. I've not actually looked into that, but I would not. Somebody, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, I need a refresh job on this. Let me uh, get my file. Wait a minute. That'll be six thousand dollars. Because because I, I mean I I don't know. I here's a new neck. Right. <laughs> <laughs> because you you actually have to when you order those things you have to I think you have to tell them like what string gauge you're planning to use. Interesting. It's like based on that. Wow. I, I oh. might be wrong on that, but when you look at when you look it at guitars, like a, yeah. when you look at guitars that like multiple guitars that have this, the squigglies aren't the same on every one. Right, they're yeah. they're different. They're adaptive to the scale and the the the, the, the tuning and the strings that you're going to use. I wonder how much that would throw me off if it all. And now I'm wondering if it would at all. Maybe yeah. not. Like, well, that's that's what I thought too. Is like that looks way more intimidating than a, a multi scale fan fret. Yeah. Um, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's yeah. Maybe it's fine. I don't. Yeah. I've never well, I mean, played one. So, so and also mentioned in the Facebook group, uh, Perrin Nelson, who is now um, playing with Meshuga, he plays his Strandberg signature guitar with <laughs> true temperament, two permit scale, and I think they use Evo the the gold fret wire for that. So it's going to have a much longer play life. Yeah. Um, right. Than than your standard nickel silver, but yeah, it's pretty. It's it's pretty funky looking. But I mean, I, I also have people come to my table, you know, at guitar shows and be like, can I bend a note? Is it going to work? Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah. Like, yeah, I do it. And they're like, it bends the same. It's like, because bending is more of like a tension thing than an actual yeah. like displacement of the fret or anything. Right. Like yeah. So yeah, you watch Perry Nelson play his, his true temperament thing and he's just like, he's not having any trouble with it. He can get vibrato. He can do, uh -huh. he can do like steep bends and all that kind of stuff. And it just, it just sounds cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> That's well, crazy. We've we've spent a lot of time talking about the multi-scale aspect of your guitars, but and I keep forgetting uh, and having to g ask you. But like, let's talk about the pickups that are in this one that I've got. Mm, yeah. Oh right, those yeah. are wild. So I, I wind my own pickups, and that's talk about going down rabbit holes, man. That um, yeah. So when I was building this first this first seven string, I was like, okay, I've got a seven string. I'm doing multi-scale. I want the pickups to be angled. Damn, that's going to be expensive. Like, <laughs> yeah, right, right. Like basically, I would, I would spent, I probably would have spent almost twice as much on pickups than I did on the whole rest of the guitar, because mm -hmm. um, I used a lot of like really just you know uh, secondhand kind of salvaged wood and stuff to build that. Um, so, so I just said, okay, what does it take to do this? And I researched it, and um, 
that first set, they work. Uh, they don't sound great. I kind of found out that I did a lot of things wrong with, with <laughs> like putting a lot of metal in them because they're blade pickups. And, and I basically just went to Home Depot and got some three-quarter inch soft steel use them for the blade cores and yeah um i've got a friend in portland named david king who builds um bases headless bases and he also winds his own pickups and stuff like that and he's like it's like oh man why'd you go and do that (laughs) it's gonna sound muddy as hell get out and they did they they it was unfortunate they're they're super hot but like there's no clarity to them Mm. so this next set was um What's in this black maple one is that I wanted to I wanted to to seek out clarity like something very sparkly. Mm-hmm. Um, go for you know I was listening to a lot of Periphery at the time, um, and Periphery has this very very mid range, very crispy kind of tone. Um, what like without being like you know it's not like Dimebag Daryl fuzzy type stuff. Mm-hmm. It's 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 very articulate. And so I started researching, like, what kind of things do you do? Well, ceramic magnets make pickups very crispy. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And um, and then blades. Ah, blades can can also give you some, some clarity, um, especially, um, you know, with an angled pickup like that. Um, and then I was like, what else? <laughs> and so, like like a thinner wire gauge that'll work and then like um there there's a guy in new york named david schwab who makes um base pickups with uh, neodymium rare earth magnets i'm like that's interesting yeah, there you go one so i threw <laughs> it was like these are basically kitchen sinks like everything in the kitchen sink pickups mm-hmm. because they've got slug bobbin with i can't remember which one the, the wires on i think it's like slugs with 42 gauge with neodymiums and blades with 43 gauge and ceramic magnets so it's just like it's like ridiculous stuff that shouldn't sound good together um it should actually be it should just be like ice picks or something like that um but they ended up turning out like very kind of articulate mid-rangey modern metal Uh kind of pickups i I like them a lot they sound awesome yeah I was like, th- I was like, man, this is just like the- so clear, like, but yeah. not, but not ice picky. <laughs> well, yeah. good, you know. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm glad. It's clear, but it's not shrill. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and I don't know why. I don't know why. I just I made them, and I was like, this is going to be interesting. We'll see what happens. Well, I mean, that's another thing that that David King said because I I did I did go to him for some advice on some things, and he's like, here's 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 what I can tell you. You're gonna make some pickups. They're gonna sound like pickups. You're going to think they sound great. Are they going to sound like anything else that's out there? Maybe, probably not. Um, but, you know, as long as your soldering is good, as long as you're, you know, you pot them, as long as you'd like do the things that you're supposed to do to construct a pickup, it's going to sound like a pickup. Mm-hmm. Right. And it did. And that's, that's a good thing. <laughs> and it actually turned out okay. And I might use that recipe again because mm-hmm. it worked out. Um, but it no, did. I was, it worked yeah, out. I'm not, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not even really sure why. Like, it, if if I changed any, I'm I'm afraid to change anything. If I if I wound them again, like I don't know mm-hmm. what would happen. Like if I changed, like the like if I put more like more or less wire on them, I'm not sure what that would do. I was actually wondering what it would sound like because I I generally prefer things that don't have a ton of output yeah. most of mm-hmm. the time. These actually do, and I do like them. Yeah. I was wondering what it would sound like or feel like rather with. A little less winding on it. I wonder yeah. if it would be a little more in my normal camp. 
Like it might be. I might if if I was going to do anything, I would probably back off by like five hundred turns on each on each coil, just to like just be incremental. Mm -hmm. You know, about five hundred turns is about as much as you can take off, or as little as you can take off, and have some noticeable changes, right? With pickups and stuff. But um, pickups are fun to make. I mean, you know, every every guitar I have has a pick has a pickup or pickups that are tailored to that instrument. You know, I mean, it's it's specific to that instrument and the sound that I wanted to, or I, I imagine getting out of it. Um, you know, the eight string that you saw on my table, I was listening to a lot of Meshuggah. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, uh, I found um, on, on YouTube, Keith Marrow did a, a, a humbucker pickup shootout of like 15 pickups, 15 Seymour Duncan pickups. Wow. And, if you have the time, it's like, I think it's like 20 minutes long. Mm -hmm. If you have the time with like good speakers or a head or earbuds, just listen to it straight through and like make, make a numbered list and maybe make like, like a little simple system of things that you like or you don't like, um, okay. you know, like, like a smiley face or a frowny face or a check or like mm -hmm. an X or something like that. And I was listening to that and I came upon the Seymour Duncan Nazgul's which is just like an awesome name for a pickup. Yes, yeah. it is. <laughs> and the Nazgul has like this, oh, it's just this this wonderful saturated sound, like very, very granular kind of tone um, with with the harmonics, like, like doing that kind of quick palm muting that kind of blooms. You know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. um, and I was just like, oh my God, that's so, so tasty. It's like, <laughs> how do I do that? So you can actually, you can actually reverse engineer a lot of the pickups that, that, um, that companies are making because they give, they oftentimes give the wire type and the magnet type. Right. And the and output. The, and the output. Yeah. yeah. And, there, and there are these online coil estimator calculators where you can like put in some factors and stuff like that. And, um, I came pretty close. I, a friend, uh, who, plays he's very into Meshuga. he plays um very heavy big amps and guitars and and uh, he actually has a guitar he has a mayonnaise guitar with that pickup in it the nazgul in it and he played them side by side and he's like dude you got pretty close <laughs> <laughs> yes that's all nice <laughs> nice well is there anything else before we wrap this thing up that you want to any real important things for the listeners to take away or things that you, you know, wanted to say or anything, anything, anything about, it doesn't even have to be about guitars. It can be about life, about life <laughs> or whatever. I don't know. I, th this is, this is, um, this is not a full-time thing for me. I'm, I am a, I, this is my 20th year as a middle school band and choir teacher. And, um, Guitar building is something that I really, I really enjoy. It, it, it's a, it's a, it, it is the thing that I pour my creative juices into. You know, I mean, obviously, my students and the music in the classroom, I put a lot of energy into too. But it, this is, it's such a different kind of way of more, more of the passion. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It, it's um. Well, you're I, creating something, yeah, versus teaching something. Yeah, that's, that's two yeah. different you know positions it's, you know that i i find them both very important you know i i don't i don't in any way believe that i'm going to compete with 
I, I don't think that I will ever have a JMR next to a Strandberg and an Ormsby in a guitar shop. <laughs> that would be <laughs> awesome. Really cool. <laughs> but I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I, I'm not going to blanket the world with my instruments. I, I feel, I think, I believe that I have something to offer in terms of the aesthetics and the the functionality that I offer on my guitars. But I don't really think that I'm going to be able to compete on on a level, especially doing this, you know, part time on the side. I do hope that I can get some some guitars out there and and put them in the hands of players that will find them to be useful musical tools, um, and and you know if I can help them get closer to the sound that they're looking for um, with pickups, you know, as part of the package, um, I, I I really want to want to be able to do more of that. Um, 2019 was a little bit slow for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm hoping 2020 will be a little bit. A little bit better. Um, Flooding with orders. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's it's a. Uh, it, but I but I do need to. I also need to remember to to maintain that balance of of job, and shop time. And I also do have a wife and a daughter. <laughs> right. <laughs> I love very much. And you know, need to make sure that I'm I'm spending a good balance of time with them as well. Um, it's it's um I'm 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 but I am I I said. 2019 was a little bit slow, but I'm in a happy place. I'm, I'm in a, I feel like, I feel like I've, I've made some, some adjustments to my, my design and some parameters and to the, the build process to make it a little bit more accurate and a little bit more consistent and a little bit more safe and a little bit more, um, just, uh, just kind of flow a bit better. You know, the work process, the build process from raw wood to, um, finished instruments. I do build guitars only out of domestic and local hardwoods. So no, no exotics, <laughs> nothing from outside the lower 48. Um, that's something that I hope I can, I can intrigue some people on, on, you know, they think like, Oh wow, this is, you know, built with wood that only came from Oregon. Mm-hmm. Um, that that is you know for environmentally environmentally conscious people I think that's a an important thing. Um, it's a it's a lot of fun. It's and it's it's fun coming here and talking with you guys about more <laughs> of this stuff like finding people that finding people that really geek out on that kind of stuff and want to know the details and mm-hmm. and and find a lot of pleasure in those details. Well, you just talked yeah. to a few thousand of them, so yeah. Uh, there you go. <laughs> I appreciate your time today. Yeah, this was yeah. a good time. Uh, well, you already answered the boss pedal question, and I already know the answer to your pizza question, but nobody else does. <laughs> I'm so not sure I do. What kind of pizza are you? Uh, so you I, I showed up at Blake's door with a, a DiGiorno's Rising Crust pizza. <laughs> that, that's, and he didn't kick you out. That's 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 what I that's what I get when I go to the the frozen food section. But if mm. I'm eating out, go to. Um, Lucky Lab, they mm. have something called the Dog Breath. Do they still have the Dog Breath on there? I haven't I, been there I actually in so haven't long. Been there. It's but, it's basically just like a pizza that's covered with several cloves of garlic, mm. and mm. It's, it's hence the name. I'm I like it. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm into it. I love you're, it. You're, you're feeling it and tasting it for like a day or two. <laughs> I, I have to Where admit something though. I I've actually never eaten a DiGiorno pizza, so. This really? is going to be a very. I brought you the four cheese because I know that you like to doctor them up and you know put some special sausage on them. Yeah, on the yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. 
I'm gonna go. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go to Sheridan later. I have a gift card from Christmas. So oh, I'm going hey, to that's get a me Merry some, Christmas. Some pizza sausage and pizza I'll sausage. sprinkle it on there. I bet <laughs> it's gonna be good. I bet it is. <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming on and educating all of us. That was a, a really good conversation, and I think uh, it definitely helped me understand kind of yeah. the good. the whole process behind it because I. I've definitely been that guy that was like, it's for you know, like, <laughs> I've definitely been that guy before. So yeah, always, always good to learn and try new things. Try new things, kids. It's yeah. good for you. It's All good right. for your tone. It is good for your tone. <laughs> you got anything else, Jess? Uh, just, uh, it's always a pleasure talking to Jason. Uh, every time I see him at a show, I'm like, oh yeah, sweet. I get to talk to somebody. To <laughs> mm-hmm. a cool guy. Yeah, so, I didn't uh, know you were at that show, so that was like, oh, sweet, he's here. I wish we didn't find him at the always, very end yeah. of this show. <laughs> always a good time talking to you and learning more about these. And uh, seriously, your your work is is right up there with the best of them. So oh, geez, thanks. I, Definitely. I really enjoy your stuff, and I hope uh, other people get to play your guitars. Well, thank you. So, All right, sounds good. So for Jess and Jason, this is Blake, and as always, folks, good luck and good tones. All right, folks, there you have it. Hopefully you have a better understanding of the whole multi-scale thing like I do now. I'm still not an expert, obviously, but it makes a lot more sense to me now. And if you want more audio content for your ears please slide over to Patreon and consider helping the show out over there. I'm posting extra audio content every week, and it's just five bucks a month to get access to that. And if you could do that, that would be so, so, so helpful. As a matter of fact, this week I'll be posting a couple audio projects I worked on recently for people to critique and make fun of me and uh, whatever else they want to do. So yeah, check that out if that's your thing. And please don't forget to share this with a friend, family, coworker, anybody you think might like some of this nerdery. Please share it. That's what this whole big thing relies on is you sharing with a friend and telling people how much you enjoy this podcast, whether online or offline or whatever. So if you could share this with one person, that would be wonderful. So yeah, thank you very much. I'll see you on the interwebs later. One last thing before we totally sign off here. I just want to remind you that if you do any shopping at Stringjoy, that's Stringjoy Guitar Strings made in Nashville, that will help me out as well. As I've said for years, I'm heavily involved in that company, and I really do think they're making the best products on the market. So if you would like to try custom strings, go to ToneMob.com Stringjoy and check them out today. I seriously, seriously, seriously love what the team down there is doing. I help them out with all kinds of things, and by you supporting them, you are also supporting me as well. And hey, you need some strings, so why not get some custom strings just for your guitar and playing style? Again, the link for that is tonemob.com stringjoy, and that will take you right to their website and you can do all your shopping through there, and that will help everyone involved out. So thank you very much. Talk to you next time. We are brought to you by the wonderful folks at Gun Street Wiring Shop. Yes, Gun Street Wiring Shop. I've talked about them before. I used to say based out of Bend, Oregon, but guess what? Sean moved to my neck of the woods. Sean's in Portland. 
Sean is awesome and has helped me with a bunch of stuff lately. And if you have wiring needs for your guitar, he can help you too. If you want to get weird with it, he can get weird. If you just need to spruce things up a little bit, there's your guy. He takes all the guesswork out of doing your guitar wiring, and he makes it simple, and his customer service is top-notch, and I can't say enough good things about Gunstory as a company. I really respect Sean and what he's all about, and the product is top-notch. I've got three different guitars that now have Gunstreet harnesses in them, and I could not be happier. So go to GunstreetWiringShop.com and check them out.